Hello, my name is Matthew Kidman, and welcome to the latest episode of Success and More Interesting Stuff, brought to you by Livewire Markets. Over the last four years, Success and More Interesting Stuff has been privileged to host some of the legends of the Australian equity market. Arguably, though, no one has had more impact on the industry than Care Nelson. A South African, Nielsen landed on Australian shores in 1983, where he joined the ranks of Bankers Trust. BT was on the rise and Nielsen stood out among the pack. After just two years, he was placed in charge of the retail business and under his leadership, he became the growth engine of the firm managing money around the globe. BT's mercurial handling of the 1987 crash saw Nielsen's retail arm of the company hit its stride, garnering billions of dollars to manage. Stellar performance and a growing reputation as a canny operator saw Nielsen's personal brand also flourish. In 1993, Nielsen decided to go it alone, forming Platinum Asset Management. As one BT operative described on the day of his departure, the trading room floor at BT felt like it was hosting a funeral. Counting George Soros's quantum fund among its original investors, Platinum got off to a flying start. Pitching itself as a global investor, the company powered through the next decade, reaching $26 billion of funds under management. In 2007, Nielsen and his team decided to float their management company. It was good timing, with the market nearing a peak before the global financial crisis. Nielsen ran Platinum for another decade before handing the reins to Andrew Clifford. Last year, still a 21% shareholder, he decided to depart the Platinum board, ready to take on the next part of his journey. Welcome, Kurt. Thank you. Quite a, quite a hectic first 70-odd years. Sounds grander than it was. <laughs> the, the journey's always seems a bit longer and harder. I'd be interested just to kick off what, you, what your first thoughts were in 1983 when you got off the plane coming from South Africa to Australia, because I imagine that was the first time you'd been to Australia. I think we came, well, we did come in 82 to, to secure the job. And, well, uh, 1982. Yeah, and, and it was interesting because at that time, South Africa was still a sort of functioning modern state. And, you know, it was really quite good in certain areas. Because remember, it's only uh, nine hours flight from Europe. So it wasn't as remote as Australia. It was much easier to keep up with what was current in, in Europe and America. So it was a different place. And then, of course, it started to deteriorate, and then Australia took a massive lead compared to South Africa. But in those days, coming out of an early 80s recession, a resources boom pending, they kept saying. Mm. But Australia would have, I imagine, would have felt more like a bit of a backwater than where you come from. You've been in London. It it was quiet. And in order to get a job here, I dropped my salary from 100,000 a year to 30,000. And that was painful. Because you were used to having savings, because I was always playing the market. So suddenly I had no disposable income, you know, everything went on survival. <laughs> and then you were shocked at the price of houses. And oh, even then? Oh, yes. And Sydney was expensive, and, um, and I always wanted to pay cash for things, so that, that also <laughs> was a problem. But that was the, those were the two big surprises. Things were going much more slowly here than in even in Cape Town, which is much slower than Joburg, which was where I was living at the time, and, um, and the cost of housing. The rest was quite the same. And the, the exchange rates, the rand, ironically, was stronger than the US dollar then. It was you know, surrendered fewer than one rand to, to get a dollar. And, it was, and the Aussie was almost on par with the, with the US dollar. So we had plenty of purchasing power, but it was a shock coming with such a drop in income. And did you think you made a mistake at all? Were there second thoughts? No, no, because, I mean, when I went to London, I wasn't exactly overpaid, but it was the cost of of making change. So so it was, you know, philosophically easy for one to accept if you wanted to make this change. And I saw the future of South Africa, where at the time, I think there were three and a half, four and a half million uh, voters and another 30 to 35 million non-voters, I didn't see that as sustainable. And and it took much longer to change than I thought it would, but I knew it was a, a bad system and, I, you know, all that other stuff. You had a bit of vision into the future. Well, it was, you needed to be pretty blind. But, of course, you did. a lot of people didn't move because it was very comfortable. They were living very well and um, the place worked extraordinarily well and you know we'd just been through heart transplant pioneering and and there was a lot because we were close to europe i mean it's such a difference 
1982, when you came, mm. I imagine you went for a few interviews. A couple of questions around that. Why would you choose Bankers Trust as it was then? And two, was it easy getting an interview? Did, were you warmly received or was that, was that a lot of shoe leather and, and asking friends for help and trying to get into doors or, or, or was it a warm reception? Well, there were three possible employers. One was MLC, which I thought was very uh, There was MacBank, which was actually at that time less successful than Bankers Trust. And then the most successful was Bankers Trust. And what you felt when you walked into Bankers was just this, this, this energy. It was like an energy field. It was like a magnet. You just, everyone was at it. Uh, you could just sense a different sort of environment to the other places. And do you remember who interviewed you? No, it was very kindly. I mean, Olive and Ross Finley, they, they took me in and um, very generous because they didn't know when I was going to arrive because you had to have police clearance, you had to have all sorts of other things and uh, they take a little while. And in the meantime, I got married back in South Africa. So we, I came here married uh, and then we had children when we shortly after we arrived. So they took a bit of a... A risk? Well, I think it worked out. It worked out beautifully <laughs> because, uh, you know, I, I, I'd travelled around Europe with a whole lot of Aussies in one of those buses, you know, those sort of, those tours that were popular at the time. And they're still going strong. And um, so I'd formed a sort of working understanding of Australia. And that was, that was great. Endearing character? Well, they were mad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they take risks. Well, they're on holiday. <laughs> they, they take risks. The girls were a bit tough. I was a bit surprised. The girls were not quite the same as I'd got to know in South Africa, but the, the, but we got on fine. Well, that, that's good. Yeah, you had a bit of a bit of an insight of what you were getting into. Exactly. Grew up in South Africa in Johannesburg. Mm. Went to university in Cape Town. Mm -hmm. I've I've heard you say in a few previous uh, discussions that your family were industrialists. Yes, and I think derived from Scotland originally, yes. going back a few generations. Yes. Can you put some meat on the bone? What kind of industry were they in and were they successful? So my father came out to South Africa uh, just before the war. That's the Second World War. Sorry, yes. Yep. Um, and so he, he came out and then as soon as war was declared, he, he went back to active service in, in Britain. So we were always sort of saw our roots as Scots. His great-grandfather had come up with this remarkable invention, which at the time was very significant because he reduced the amount of coal or coke you used in producing a tonne of steel by a third. So you could move your steel mills away from the coal fields. So it was significant. And he earned a, a royalty together with the other supporters of his scheme, um, a shilling a tonne. Right. For context, an unskilled labourer at the time would have earned five shillings a week you know, pitiful 15 pounds a year or something. So this was an incredible payment and he had to defend it. But he was clever because he and his conspirators uh, just talked about heating the, the air going into a, a blast furnace, not how you did it or any other. So they couldn't drill their... The, the users couldn't drill their way around the, the concept. The whole concept was about heating air that goes into a blast furnace. And then his son went into, um, they were all engineers. He, his father had been an engineer he, um, and the, his son was an engineer and at the age of 26 started his own uh, locomotive business. So well, it wasn't locomotive, it was actually steam engines. So this is we're talking about now in the mid-1800s, mm. uh, 1830s or 1840s, um, where, you know, initially steam engines were stationary. They were used for pits to uh, lift and lower and then they gradually move them onto wheels or onto ships, so you turn them into motive power. That was valuable because you sort of saw a pattern, and so you understood wealth came from doing, <laughs> not talking, and uh, that had a big impact on our thinking as a family. Well, that transformed how we operate in the world, yeah. one of the so big movements. It was huge, and uh, the, these locomotives, we were one of the biggest in the world at the time. You know, they went out to all the colonial uh, territories like South Africa, India, massive distances. So they were, you, you load a 60-ton machine onto a boat, and it was always then, you know, on the top of the boat. Um, huge, huge business. And so they all made a lot of money. And in typical fashion, they then decided they would go back to their roots, which was on the land. Mm -hmm. So um, 
So you're saying don't go farming. <laughs> don't go farming. <laughs> but they, the, the, the idea then filled my mind about you know, the benefit of intellectual property rights and the importance of being in the game, whatever the new game is. And remember, steam engines at the time were... In transformative. The, were transformative. So uh, you, don't go too far. Don't go too far from where the action is. And it applies today. Don't, don't go and s- if you don't understand that AI is fundamental to a massive change. And what I do at the moment is I say, well, we're probably now in the third railway boom. My poor guys get very bored with all this rubbish. <laughs> and I say, I think that's where we are. We've had the first two, and now we're in the third. And I felt that the change that we've seen with AI now elongated the lives of the Microsofts and mm. the Googles and what have you. So that's how I saw it. But so anyway, AI is the third railway boom? Well, I'm, you know, whatever it is, but it's, it's, it'll elongate it. So that, that's where we, we learned all about the importance of, of being ac- in the action. And as I often say, you know, governments don't create wealth. It's all about what firms do and individuals do in a coherent concerted manner. So for you, was there pressure to become an engineer, if that was the thing? No, because my father was actually a salesman. What got him out to South Africa? He was such a brilliant salesman that um, there was a company at the time called Gestetner, and they did these rotary printing machines. So if you were a, a government officer and you wanted to put out placards or you know some gazette, you'd make up, you'd type up this um, base document, and then it'd be converted into a rotating drum that would then print. So it was offset printing. And so they gave him the territory of the Cape to the Congo. Mm. So he had a driver, and they drove from Cape All Town to the Africa. Congo, which is like, I think, not such a different distance from here to, to Darwin or something. Maybe a little less, but not much. And so that was his territory. So when war was declared, he immediately volunteered to go back I think foolishly went into the commando. So not only does he volunteer, but he goes into the heart of darkness as well, mm. and uh, came out okay, a bit damaged, but not too bad. And then they so after the war, they just with my mother, they said, "Well, things are not worth sticking around for here because you know there was still food rationing in the fifties. They they went out in about forty seven. But there's still food rationing right through to about 54, 55. This is in the UK. In the Britain. And yeah. so, you know, it wasn't an easy place. The, co- the war had been a huge cost. You know, they'd flogged off everything to it took make. took a long time to recover. Yeah. yeah. And so your dad, back in mm. South Africa, where, yes. where, was there talk about businesses, shares? Because my understanding is you started to look at shares when you were a teenager. Yeah, And 13. you started, you couldn't help yourself. You started buying stuff. Yeah, I didn't have a clue. But... Uh, I started buying because my mother had quite a. She, they, they were both. She very, was the portfolio they, manager. They were both very privileged. So they had a bit of money. So they, my mother had this portfolio, and she was hopeless. I thought, but she, she, um, because she had a portfolio, it sort of became. Well, of course, you got to have a portfolio, and so I sort of got involved. And there was a fantastic publication called the Financial Mail. They ran these little stories on on stocks, so they'd. They'd run the quarterlies, or and sorry, in those days, the half yearlies, so that you could read up and make up your own story. But you know, you became good at making up stories, and well, that that obviously <laughs> had an impact on you because you're. I remember in various parts in your platinum day. I don't know about BT. You used to write up your trips, and and quite eloquently mm. and tell everyone who you saw, and it was a good yes. read. So that must have had an impact on you. Perhaps. That's a great way to communicate well, your thoughts. Well, I was lucky because what happened is um, at university, because I was in such a hurry, I started work after I left school um, in a trust company. And I did my first year part-time, my Bachelor of Commerce. And it's exhausting because you, you're working during the day and you go off to university in the evening. It wasn't fun. So I decided I'd go full-time. But I was in this massive hurry, for what I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, so I had a couple of spare sessions. So I took up an English course and a sociology course. So I, I got quite a nice rounding from just being a, a pure commerce student. And you think that's important? Well, I liked it because I started, you know, it, you appreciate English more having done the course. And sociology was fascinating because it, it was about social interaction. 
So I was very pleased to have done that. And then I got into, uh, immediately I left uni, I, I knew I should get a training. Um, I'd learned a little at the trust company, and we were at the tail end of the 69 uh, resources boom. So that's when I was going, started university. And, and so in, we all know about the resources boom here with Poseidon and the nickel yes. price, but in South Africa it was something's... It was exactly the same. You know, it was the same boom. Almost so everyone was playing the share market. Almost the same day, you know, it was the same boom. And um, anyway, I went to university full-time, and then after that I went to London, and, and there I got a training from a really good fellow at Courtauld's, which was a textile business. So they were the leading textile, one of the leading textile businesses in Britain, and as a consequence of Europe at the time. So when in the industry there, um, what was going to Britain, you said that South Africa's obviously closer and it's in a similar time zone to Europe. Was that something that most South Africans did or, or to go to London and work or go to Britain and work? And was it always something that you had entertained? I'd always entertained going into broking or funds management. It was really broking. In those days, you didn't really have a funds management business like now. And um, English-speaking South Africans would go to Europe, uh, predominantly English-speaking South Africans, because they're, they're of the heritage. And at the time, you know, within South Africa, the ruling group uh, was split between on a language basis between Afrikaans speakers and English speakers. And so I think it was a sort of confirmation of your roots because you weren't particularly welcomed by the ruling party, which is Afrikaans-dominated. And then the poor other guys didn't have any representation. But we were sort of sitting there, so you'd, you had a nat- natural inclination um, because, you know, you were either first generation out or second or third, whereas the Afrikaner had been there for 300, 400 years. Mm. And so it was a rite of passage. And then... Um, so I li- lived in and worked in London for about f- three years. That would have been an eye-opener. It was great. I mean, in those days, you'd go for a lunch. You know, and the brokers <laughs> would entertain Most you. of the English I never mean, came back after no, lunch. No, I mean, <laughs> I remember barely making it back to the office one after studying the breweries. They decided to really load me up. I mean, it was, you think back with total embarrassment. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's just a different... Uh, Different way of living, I suppose. So you come back to South Africa. Were you a good broker or you knew then that that being on the buy side or a fund manager was, was the way forward? When did you crystallise that in your head? Oh, what I'd learned made me, um, you know, put me ahead of my peers because I'd been in, uh, at that time, an important financial capital of the world and I'd written reports and what have you. And so when I joined um, a Broking outfit. I was putting out with the assistance of two other guys. We would put out a report on an industry every six weeks. So we were working extremely hard. And what you'd do is you'd you'd marshal the whole idea of what you were looking at. And I'd started by looking at neglected companies. It was a natural inclination for me to avoid the crowd. So I always had that natural inclination. And um, we'd put these notes out, which was a a study of the industry followed by a couple of pages on each company in that industry. I would then go on to the heads of these different institutions and I would flog the idea, but with total innocence. I mean, I either believed it or I'd say, this is not, you know, this is... So either way, I sold what I concluded. It wasn't always... I, I didn't always come up with a buy. And so that was quite good because you, we started winning market share. Oh, people respected that. Oh, they, they hadn't had it. You know, no one had actually gone out so aggressively to say, this is what I've just written. I need five minutes of your time and I'll summarise what I think this means. And so we took our market share at, from about 1.5% to 3.5%. So I was offered a partnership within six months because, you know, we were rolling in money. But the trouble in those days is there was a bit of honour around being a partner. You didn't just sort of accept it and then disappear within a few years. So I rejected it, which was costly, but it was a good thing because I, I was conscience clear that when I left, you know, everyone had been well informed that I wasn't staying. But I took longer to, to get my pool together than I'd thought. So it, t- it took me about six years. 
I had a cut-off figure that I needed to meet. And then I, I said, no, I've got to go now. And it was very tempting to stay because you would have lived extremely well. That, that, that would have been a major decision for you. You was, talked was about to start the 100000 to the thirty. Yeah. that <laughs> I've heard of people taking a 10% pay cut, but 70%. It's true. And what, what, it wasn't difficult because if you had a clear vision of where the place was going, it wasn't a difficult decision. So we're back to where we kind of started. You've, you've landed, you've done your interviewing in 82 and you've come in 83. You've started at Bankers Trust. I don't think yeah. it was called BT then. I think it was just Bankers Trust, was it? Yes, it was. Yeah. And you spent a couple of years working. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know as an analyst or a portfolio manager because I know in '85, two years later, they put you in charge of the retail component of the business. Yes. So it was, I was stock picking. So I, I, I think I got that fund within a year or so because the problem at the time was you needed to hold stocks longer than one year. And in fact, at that time, the interpretation lay in why, why you bought a stock to whether it was capital taxed or not. And I think, you know, poor old... Olive had to put up with me, and I knew nothing about macro. And so I would always talk about stocks. And, That's know, Olive Rahn. Yes. And yep. so, you know, I was no good to him. So it was a good, good skip because I could then do what I sort of understood and get the benefit of Olive's input on the macro. So that saved a huge amount of effort on my part because I, I trusted what they were co- concluding. And then I could just look at stocks as a consequence. So it gave me the... the Latitude to run, initially it was called the Split Trust Growth Fund, and we had one or two unusual luck, uh, pieces of luck. Do you remember any of those, that well, the, luck? The, the big luck was um, Westfield, and um, we took 17, I think it was 17% of Westfield in this Split Trust Growth Fund. Um, when there was all that backlash about the Lowys having gone into TV stations, and the Channel stock, 10? Uh, yeah, and they got all, you know, the market got very self-righteous and indignant, which always offers an opportunity. So then um, that gave us about 2 to 3% a year of outperformance, just that stock. It went up something like fivefold. Do you I remember what massive. it was in your portfolio as a percentage? No, it was huge. And, you know, and you'd trim it periodically, but, I mean, it just kept growing. So it was, uh, that was a big one. But otherwise, it was just all the stocks that were, you know, out and about. But when I'd go with the, with the other fellows on stock visits, because Olive would set the, the agenda, we want this type of company or that type of company. Is it an exporter? Is it a financial sensitive? That's how he uh, built his portfolios very, very successfully. But I didn't really understand that because I said, well, if that's the case, you'll probably have it fairly well, well priced. I always was trying to find an arbitrage. And to some extent he was, because he was ahead of the pack. He said, interest rates are going to fall, so we need to do this. But the, the research wasn't deep. It was just making sure they had the interest rate sensitivity or they were exporters or whatever. So that's how they were investing. And when I came into mine, because I now had to live with these holdings for several years because of the tax aspect, um, I'd invest differently. And you'd obviously go and meet the companies. Yes, so, and construct your own models and views on the business? Yes, well, I've never been big on models because my whole focus was on what I call the engine room. I didn't call it that at that time. But I, again, I was sensible because I'd go in and eat humble pie, which, you know, as a young twerp is not easy to do. And I'd say to them, what's the trick of this business? You know, if they had pity, they'd say, well, this is really what you need to understand. Now, you can either be a complete cynic or you can take what they tell you at face value. And I tended to be quite fortunate. Well, not many people actually ask that simple question. Yes. Well, what's the key to this business? What yes. makes it work? I like yeah. the word trick. Yeah. It sounds like there's a bit of magic in it. <laughs> well, there is. And sometimes it is just a very well-run business. There's no moat. There are no catalysts. It's just a very well-run business that's going through a bit of a lull. And so then people sort of get confused. They start saying, I mean, you look at Estee Lauder now. You know, they've had a huge supply chain problem or what have you. The stock's gone down massively, and it's probably time to look at it. But, you know, it's, I wonder if this business has really changed. They've got problems with distribution. They've got problems with, with as I say, their, their supply chain. And they've got a big China business. So everything's coincided to make the stock look terrible, but I don't think... It's still got a good brand, now. It's got a huge brand, and it's got, you know, several very strong brands. So I don't think it's finished. But now, you know, because of that confluence, 
everyone then overreacts. And your job is then to go in and say, is this temporary or is it permanent? And I would guess in their case, you know, they're serious people. I suspect it's temporary. And Oliver, who was on our last show, right, and, and he, he explained in 1985 that things changed for BT or Bankers Trust as it was then, that with the um, change in the currency, the, the floating of the dollar, that they could open up and become global investors. Yes. And that was the trigger to grow the retail business because they'd been an institutional business up until that, well, mainly. Yes. And so that timing was good for you because that that was your job then I gather yes and that that was a good platform to kick off on well it was very uh, fundamental change and remember up up till when I was living in England they also had con- uh, exchange controls so what this meant was a complete freeing up of exchange and because of the history and you see Bezos exploiting this all the time because of the uh, path dependency we all have we, t- we don't react to change very quickly. And the observation I had at the time was, if you were looking at engineers, there was no cross-tying of what was happening to an engineering company in Germany or America. And so all these companies were looked at within their geographic zone. And that was a huge arbitrage. So you see something that was quite crazy um, at half the price of what you would be paying in one market. And so that was a... a Opportunity. Well, if they're well run, they, they should be much closer in valuation, I gather. Well, ex- exactly. And so when 87 was getting very hot, what alerted me, apart from Olive understanding very fully what was going on, what I understood was I could put, for example, a facsimile of uh, BHP together, you know, the mining and the, and the uh, metallurgy, the steel at, at that time, um, I could put the same company together at half the valuation. You know, if I put three companies together, I was paying one, in fact, about 40% of what was happening to the price of BHP. So it was very, it was very clear. You, you had touchstones to use to say, this is crazy. We, we may as well tick off on that great <laughs> 87 story because you've mentioned it there. In the introduction, I called it mercurial i don't know if that's the right word but olive gave us a good rundown of what bt were thinking as an entity yes. across all and and he made the point that you made the wise decision at some stage within 1987 that things were getting too expensive and yes. i'm sure it was the discussion around the table oh yes i'm just wondering given you're a stock person and rather than a macro person like olive those decisions about overall markets must be harder to come by but you did make that decision which which you just do on valuation basis of individual companies, or yes. do you have a? You do it, or on is valu- it broader than that? Well, you do it on valuations, but you knew you wouldn't want to go down to you know no equity exposure. So then you know, Vasant w- um, was Kilnani was banging on because he was an aeronautic graduate, so, and he understood the maths of pricing derivatives, and he just kept banging the table saying these are gifts. So, you know, even I, who understood nothing, uh, worked out that I should probably use those. And so I came on board and bought some of those. And um, and it was because I couldn't go fully. I think I had a fair amount of cash. So in the first week of the market sell-off of 50%, we were down only 15 But because we were forewarned, we didn't panic. You see, uh, you know, people... Like you saw recently, um, if you haven't prepared your mind, you, you, you really are vulnerable because well, you, you're in shock. You're in shock. And, and so you'd beg people not to redeem. You know, friends of mine, I said, don't, don't it's, 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 it has happened. And we were quite smart because we immediately put out a document to our investors and said, this is what's happened. It's not now the time to panic now. And in fact, what actually happened is the, sto- the um, split trust then... Um, sold off to about 19% down. But because we weren't panicking, we then fully participated in the in the bounce. So you became a buyer? I don't think I needed to. All I needed to do was call in these, these puts and so on. And that gave me cash. And I probably would have been slow to buy, if I'm honest, with what I probably did, and I can't recall. But the good thing was telling people, don't sell. But by then, you know, you, you'd... You'd had some redemptions anyway, so your cash had, had diminished. You'd pulled in some cash, 
and then because you hadn't sold anything, your your fund looked fantastic. I think we ended the year twenty seven percent up. Quite remarkable. It was, you know, so it was a lot of good luck. But as I say, Olaf and Versant were were right on the money, and they knew what was what was necessary. Yeah, they they navigate, and that set mm. BT up mm. for a long time. Yeah, a very it was good. a very clever decision. Uh, as I said to Olive at the time, were you surprised how it played out? Even though you say mentally you've been preparing for it, yes. Not many people, as he said, not many people think Wall Street's going to fall twenty percent one yeah. day, and you'll the Australian market go even further, 25% the following day. Did that? Were you in shock in that sense of how it played out? I think to deny that would be strange. I think, you know, when you've had a, a path that has been progressively getting stronger and stronger, you, you always have a shock. But I could see people around me were too panicky, you know, with investors wanting to redeem it. And so that, I thought, well, hold on, these companies aren't suddenly worthless, and so you keep going back to your valuations. If, if you lose sight of that, you know, the, the funniest thing is to see a chartist who becomes a fundamentalist halfway through the story. <laughs> stick to the charts, you think? <laughs> stick to whatever you want to stick to, but don't change the rules halfway through. Yeah, of course. So but before we, we recorded the show, you were showing me some charts yes. that you yes. took around in that period. Up, We'll go forward now, but the next five years up to 1993, post- yeah. Yep. Post the eighty seven crash, and for the risk you were taking, yes, you were knocking out unbelievable numbers, yes. and you were doing it not just in Australia but globally, yes. So a couple of questions around that. First of all, you were probably or, or BT was the first group to say from Australia we can manage global money. Yes, that was tough though. It required a lot of work. We well, you, you needed to travel, but you know, when I first went to Germany, we're talking now early 90s, you, you, they had seen a few local analysts. They hadn't seen analysts from abroad. And you'll say, come on, that can't be true. But it wasn't like now, you know, where you're doing roadshows, you're doing all that stuff. You were a bit of a novelty, were you? Well, you almost. Well, Olive was a novelty when he first arrived, because he's tall. When he first arrived in uh, Tokyo, they'd all sort of stop and stare because, he's, you know, he's... Stood out. <laughs> yeah. So um, there was... A couple of decent research houses, but you weren't on the continent. The equity markets were pretty primitive, and France, I mean, Italy was not even on the map, you know. So it was Germany, France, Spain a bit. So there was used up a lot of um, shoe leather, yes. but it sounds like it was just an exciting time. There, yeah. was, there was a slowdown in world economies, things would have been cheap, interest rates high. So it, for you, as a as a stock picker and looking for value, it must have been just a goldfield. It was it was fantastic. And because you weren't flapping about whether it would pay back or not, because I had a very simple view that if you bought well, it might make you nothing in the first year or two, 18 months, say. But once, the, if your analysis was correct, once it kicked in, you'd immediately pick up 30% in the change in the valuation. And because you're always bringing in new stocks... You know, so it's a ripple effect through your portfolio. So companies that have been nascent for a while suddenly kick in. So you do get a bit of a step up in your unit price over time. And do you remember some of those companies that were in continental Europe that, oh, that you went my, and saw? My, and my long favourite was Siemens. And one year or two it would make me money, the next it would lose me money. And I was very stubborn. I just said, this is a serious company going through transition because at the time, it, you know, in the earlier times it had been electromechanical, then it went to electrical, and then it went to digital. So it was always going through this big transformation. And eventually now it happens to be almost, um, you know, electrical and, electro, uh, and digital. So it's gone through all these iterative sh- changes, but you needed to understand that. And did you make a lot of money over the long run? Out of that one, not particularly. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's something you did make money? We, we I said some of these little companies was in Switzerland, and they were they were priced as as, as sort of cripples. You know, they were they were available at P's of less than ten, and these were companies like Seeker that now trades thirty times, and there were a whole lot of these companies. Linton Sprugli, you know, was and you knew what they were doing. They were starting to go on a global push. And it's exactly what you're seeing in Japan now. So I'm very hot on Japan right now. So these companies are transforming very quickly. 
Let's put Japan today on hold, mm. but let's go back to 1990 in right. Japan. Yes. You're running global funds. Japan's a big part of the world economy and it's had that long boom. Yes. But my understanding was you managed to avoid a lot of the carnage there when it toppled over and started its multi-decade bear run. And how did you come about that, if that's right? That, again, is another Munshi phenomena. So there's this fellow called Dennis Tai who looked after Japan, was always, you know, coming and going from Japan. And, you know, he'd regale us with to- the stories of these cross-shareholdings and the, the value of the, you know, the, gra- the famous grounds of the imperial palace in Tokyo. And you could just see, you know, the cross-holdings really warned you that there was a danger once that started to unravel. Because you'd had that in Hong Kong earlier with the Hongs had been cross-held. And when that starts changing, you, you get this massive supply. And um, so that wasn't difficult. In fact, on the on my personal account, I took a, a big short at about 36 and it went up to about 30, just shy of 39 and made a lot of money out of that, buying puts, one-year puts. And with BT, did you take it to virtually yeah. nothing? Yes, we, we went right out because, or pretty much right out, because the, the, the values, we couldn't find stocks to earn. And as a fund manager... We all have this problem, but you would have experienced it. When you make a decision and, and you back away from a market, you might take on cash or you might sell out completely. Invariably, the market continues to go up for a period. Was there any – and investors get upset. Was there any period like that where you've made those very decisive decisions and how do you handle that, the, the investors coming back at you saying, what what are you doing? Well, I duck and dive because what <laughs> I'll do, I'll, I'll, I'll take it out of what I think is an extreme market and then I'll, I'll just buy stuff elsewhere. So I don't actually feel... I, I'm, always trying to, I'm always trying to improve the value within the portfolio. And value is not just price to book. It's am I getting more growth for this price or am I getting more... So you look at it as a complete portfolio. Yes. And so you keep shifting. Um, so right now, I'm starting to buy Asia again. Um, so, you know, I've got my positions in the States. I'm not particularly... I'm trimming very, very cautiously. I think the, uh, you know, this whole AI game's got quite a way to go. I don't think the stocks are so crazy. You, you know, they're on, they're full, I think. Um, but as I said earlier, AI has changed the, the longevity of these businesses. And we're not quite sure who are going to be the suppliers of applications. So that, that run still has to be, Experience and do we see it in a in a cost line that margins for companies improve because it takes out a whole layer of costs or is it more sophisticated than that? I, I think surely that gets competed away. And what is interesting about these big names now, the big seven, uh, magnificent perhaps, but um, the the point about them is they're having to spend some serious loot. So you know, between them each, they're spending thirty five to fifty billion dollars this this current year. On, on these chips and so on. And so there's, there is the need to keep that in mind, that the marginal return on capital of these businesses is starting to deteriorate. And the question then is, do these large language models um, just become a utility? Do you really get your rental return on them? Or is it through the wrapping that you're sort of seeing with Microsoft, where it charges 30 bucks a month is that what's going to secure its return so we've got a whole lot of questions that haven't fully been resolved particularly around uh, the applications so hitherto it's all been about llms now we've got to find the guys who really benefit from the applications it sounds like it's keeping you occupied you're not not resting in retirement on that 1993 in the introduction uh, and that was a quote from someone i know who worked at bt and walked into the must have been late ninety three. You could clarify the date that you, you'd announced that you were leaving, mm-hmm. and um, that was a blow to BT because the numbers had been spectacular mm-hmm. and had been a great success, and the retail arm had done well. What that that must have been a hard decision given the success you'd had, or had you always opined for a business that was yours that, that you could build something? Well. I was coming up towards my tenth anniversary, and they'd been so good to me. I felt I had a, you know, I had to fill, fulfil an obligation there. And Olaf and, and Ross had been fabulous, so that was 
one thing, but the other was that, you know, to have those numbers required a huge commitment, and you know, it cost me in the end with the marriage and so on. So there are costs when you're working that at that pitch. You were exhausted. No, no, no. Far, you know, I was too full of my <laughs> self-importance to worry about that. But it, it wasn't important. It was a mission. I had a mission. So I approached the board, uh, the uh, you know, the CEO at the time, and with a written suggestion that I allocate. Uh, the, the the rewards, but that the rewards were based on our art performance, but they didn't like that because they said they had no such arrangements in the organisation. So I, you know, I so you were effectively putting up a, a suggestion or a, an argument that your team should be separated and get rewarded for their rather than go into the overall pool. No, it was separate anyway, but it was more the fact that if we bring in this massive flow we should be getting some of the fee, a tenth of the marginal fee from the flow. It was really quite a, it, was a, it wasn't a silly claim. It was a very workable claim. So you, our interest lay in the firm's interest of FUM, if you like. Mm. But, um, and the marginal return, so, so a tenth of the fee that came from that extra flow. So it wasn't, it wasn't greedy. And that, that got rejected? Yeah. <laughs> so you're a bit crestfallen at that stage? So I was a bit fed up. And then fortunately I'd been running this money for Soros. And at that time we were, were in Latin America and going like a train. That was the new playground? That was the new one. And so Soros had um, agreed to give us money. But that's a great story. So I didn't know who Soros was, Mr. Soros, as I always tend to refer to him. And um, this fellow had got hold of me and said, look, we need someone to run money in Asia. I said, well, my game is more global. Oh, he won't give any money until you... um, He meets the manager. So I had been in Caracas where I was spending a bit of time with a um, a Bankers Trust employee because we used their offices throughout Latin America. He had one strange habit, though. Every time we'd been together for a few Hours, he'd dash off to the loo and come back sniffing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I had a, I'd form a view about him. Anyway, I'd had this very busy three weeks in Latin America. So we arrive at JFK, and there are these fellows walking down this massive passage. The little fellow in tennis togs in the middle, and this big Germanic-looking fellow next to him, and my Romanian friend uh, on the other side. And that was my introduction to George Soros. And the, the Germanic-looking fellow was Druckermiller. And so they were meeting you at the airport? Yes. No, and, and, and that's the funny part. So, so um, George Soros had just finished his game of tennis. So, so he was, at that time, he was about 55, and he was going mad on tennis. So tennis was everything. And uh, so they, he'd helicoptered in to meet me there. And so he gave us some money. But anyway, we were making... Out like bandits because this was at BT or yes so so no so then he gave me money in in uh, uh, ninety three late ninety two ninety three and and in one year we turned thirty five million into a hundred and forty million one year and he liked that no doubt he thought I was wonderful <laughs> he thought I actually knew what I was doing he could keep on playing tennis on <laughs> so, that. But the best thing was, as years subsequent, we I did about thirteen percent. So you know, if you if you compounded that, that's good luck, and there was a lot of luck. Though we did have a theory, and I'll tell you about that. Um, but but in addition, you always have luck. So my theory was, when Bondi was buying in Latin America, you know, he bought the telephone. This is Alan Bond. Yeah, he bought the telephone exchange in uh, in um, Chile. And I thought, now that's interesting. I wonder what he's seeing. And so I went there and I went to Chile and I went to um, Buenos Aires. And I could see that it was just ridiculous. In fact, when I started visiting the companies in BA, um, they looked at my card, they say, but you're a banker. And I said, well, not really. I'm just because it had bankers trust. And I said, no, 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 I'm uh, here to buy stocks in the Bolsa. Well, the Bolsa did in BA at the time, did about three to four million shares, dollars of shares a day. So they knew I was a liar. 
And so I had to send, when I got back to town, back here, I had to send them all these documents because I saw this one company called Bessa. It was a it was a sugar mill and refiner, just like CSR. And they were really interesting in CSR. So I sent them this stuff and I sort of improved my credentials. And at that time, there was real inflation. And um, the thing about inflation when it's chronic like that, it was over a thousand percent is relative prices get completely confused. And there were only three of us interested. There was uh, Mark Mobius, um, Mark Faber, and myself. And we were the sort of the missionaries of the day going into these markets. Well, and you'd be the only bull out of those three. Sorry? <laughs> you'd be the only bull. Well, bullish. The other two no, no, made no, their they were they were bulls because they always hated something else. So this yeah, was something they always they hated loved. something. Yes, but, th- but they were good. And... I was staying at the Hilton in BA, and I think my my uh, stay there for a week was, you know, about a hundred dollars or one hundred and twenty dollars. I foolishly made a phone call back to the office, and that for fifteen minutes was, I think, about twelve hundred dollars. <laughs> I was hugely embarrassed, but everything got conf- confused. And I heard of one pe- fellow who had a, and you won't believe this, but it's true, who had a taxi driver. And, uh, you know, fuel all day for a dollar. So when you, get, you, when you have hyperinflation, everything becomes obsessive, compulsive. You've got to get your hands on a physical asset. The theory at the time was that if you'd thought of the, the great um, Spanish conquest of Latin America, once that had reversed, everything then went into a a sort of domino effect. And my idea was, once you had Chile starting, you could see how Argentina would remove protectionism. Mm -hmm. And gradually it would work its way into Brazil, and then into Colombia, and then into Peru, and so on. And um, we made a huge amount of money. Just getting getting back away from, you've escaped South America, you've survived that. We get back to... Platinum and platinum grew enormously. Yes, it was tremendous success. Yes. I quoted twenty six billion. It might have gone mm. higher than that. Yes. but that, that's so. Did it was it? Did it do better than you thought? Because you took some of your BT colleagues and you got started and you really exploited that international investing opportunity in Australia. Well, Andrew Clifford and I thought it was going to be easy because we, we thought <clears throat> we thought we had something useful, which is all this arbitrage we keep talking about, and we were getting nowhere. So when MLC came, they promised distribution. And so they organized roadshows. And they then said, you can run some of our pension money, except we rejected that when it finally came to this, uh, the squeeze because they were going to pay us too little for that. So we always were very aware that we didn't want too much fun simply because we wanted to do the job on what we were running rather than this promise of enormous business. But they did draw in a lot of money because they were professional salespeople and that got us going. They'll always do that. They were, they were good. And then we, we, we negotiated for a lower fee. We, we negotiated the right to start our own fund. They tied us up, hogtied us. But anyway, we gave them more uh, concession on the fee and then we were allowed to start the international fund. So the international fund started after the MLC Platinum Fund and then that started doing well and we we were clear that there was money to be made out of Europe and Japan, so we started those funds. And then later we, we started the Healthcare and Technology Fund. And we started the Technology Fund right on the eve of the crunch, and we wrote in big letters, this is very dangerous, but if you desperately want to have access to, I mean, it was very explicit, if you want to have access to uh, technology, we will do it for you. And, you know, when the... Crunch came. We didn't fall nearly as much as the others, but it's not been a very well performing fund. It's you know because it's always been too value orientated in what is an, a, a growth, growth sector. A growth sector. Yeah, and so Platinum, uh, mm. the actual management company, you listed mm. in two thousand and seven. Yeah, I remember it was an amazing float. <laughs> We're at the top of the market again the next cycle. Yes, yes. And it, it traded well above its issue mm. price. And it, I mm. remember if you got stock, you were lucky. Yes. It was one of those great floats. A couple of questions around that. One, why did you want to do that? Was it to incentivise others? It's obviously made you, in terms of um, money, because you, mm. you, it was visual, a, a wealthy person. Um, but was it to incentivise others that there was there was listed liquid stock that they, in terms of employees and your other investors? And two, 
the question beyond that is today, obviously, is a slightly different story, whether that, that's been a burden to carry, the fact that you had a listed management company. I've always said there's no need to list these companies. That's been my standard response. Why we did it was some of the others wanted a bit of money out of the business, and, um, you know, that was fair enough. It also put a value on it. Um, so those were the two drivers. But in fact, in the end, it worked out well because, you know, Judy uh, managed to get the money she needed for her art projects. This is your wife? Yeah, and, yep. and they were substantial. Um, and a great success. Oh, they were huge. I mean, in the latest exhibition, you can barely get into the place at the White Rabbit. And um, so it gave her latitude. We never paid too much attention to the share price. We were interested in what, what are we doing for our shareholders. And that is correct. And we would say so in the AGMs. We'd always say, well, there are three uh, parties to this transaction. The most important one is our unit holders, um, then our employees, and thirdly, the shareholders. So we've always declared that. I think it's probably going to change now, but because um, we've got a new fellow in, an American, uh, hopefully we'll make some changes. So... No, I don't think this is a business that should be listed. <laughs> the, it's interesting you went down that path because listing does come with that extra responsibility yeah. because you're in the public eye. Today, you're correct me if I'm wrong, you're still 21% shareholder. Yes. And as you said, this change is afoot and yes. you've been part of seeing that change because the share price and the performance hasn't been probably to what you would hope. I've listened to you before and you've talked about in investing, one of the things you've got to try and control is emotions. Yes. We all get emotion in our private lives, in our professional lives, and you've got to try and get rid Do you think on this one, because it is your business, because Platinum, emotions have been um, too strong, or do you think over time that the value will be resuscitated and you just got to play it through sometimes? How do you see that very important investment? Well, as you know, I, I was pushing hard for a segregation of, of responsibilities. And I think um, that's where the, the problem started. And that, I hope, gets resolved here. And I think, um, to some extent, they managed to paint themselves into a corner by taking uh, contrary views that weren't necessarily that smart, you know, particularly around China. You're talking about the actual investing within yeah. the funds. And so I think that sort of put a dampener on the responses of the individual fund managers to conform to a sort of central thesis. So I think that's where the problem's not, uh, arisen, and I think that's going to be addressed. Well, I hope it is, um, because that just sets you up to always argue that, oh, no, these stocks are expensive, we can't possibly buy those. I mean, why I've made good money is I've, I still own several of those leading stocks. You know, companies like Microsoft... I've made, you know, 22 times out of that. And on a multiple basis, it's become expensive. It is expensive. The trouble is that it has an elongated life. It has this extraordinary, unlike the others, it's got this business application core. So it's, it's, like, it's like being a civil servant. I mean, they're absolutely locked into companies' existence. And then with this co-worker idea, you know, Cobot, um, that'll probably keep them going. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't buy it here. You know, I was buying it at, at, at $22. So it's now over 400 I think it's 407 overnight. You might be able to retire on that. Yes. <laughs> True. <laughs> Quite a profitable outcome. So, um, and, but, you know, these, a lot of these companies are not ridiculous. They're, I wouldn't buy them here. Um, but I don't know that they're going to get thrashed on a uh, sell down. Uh, they'll take a bit of water, but I don't think they'll get killed. So just to wind up, and we're, we're getting close to our time, so just with Platinum, mm -hmm. you've still got that holding, and I'm, I'm imagining from what we're saying that that's very important to you and you're happy to write out the what, what you think the changes that are in place. No, it's not important to me. So it's a very small part of my, my portfolio, but I, I'm... I am still an owner simply because I feel an obligation that, you know, we brought this to the public. I have suggested to the board and continue to suggest to the board that there needs to be some changes, but that's about as far as it goes. Mm. And even when I had 20% and when my wife and I had 40%, I never felt I had the right to uh, really demand. 
as I could have in legal sense, but I didn't feel that was appropriate. Maybe a bit old-fashioned, mm-hmm. um, but that is uh, that's the truth. I never felt it was correct. I made a big fuss at the board meeting and said, this is crazy, this remuneration structure is wrong, uh, the way we're, we're running the place is wrong, blah. But um, I so I'll just hold that regardless. So it's neither an in indicator of my faith or my lack of faith. Um, but I'd be surprised if... Um, given the antecedents of this fellow who comes from a McKinsey type of management consulting background and a distribution background subsequent to that, that he won't understand very quickly and and forcefully what needs to change. Um, markets, mm. you're obviously still very engaged. Yes. Even, even though you're, you're out on your own now. Expert over time in Pan-Asia... And interesting things are happening in Asia. Yes. China is struggling. Yes. Japan, as you mentioned earlier, going very well at the moment. Mm. India on the rise and potentially the next China. Yes. How, how do you play Asia? And I'm no doubt you're looking at a whole raft of different investments in that area of the world. When you have a property bust, as you saw in the States, um, you know, after '09, it's, it's a quite long duration so that doesn't get quickly fixed, regardless of what the central government does, because there's been just massive overbuilding, in my view. And the trouble is, if you've got an empty block of flats and they're not decorated internally, you're, not, you're going to be the last one to want to decorate yours because you've got to let, let it out. And you, So, you know, they're not fully completed flats often. So there's a whole... There's some institutional impediments for that property market to come good quickly... And without that, and that's why I think without that, the, the, the government needs to induce people to do things. Um, and I think that's why they're putting some protections into the markets now. And by the way, we made a lot of money out of buying those protection funds. So they're not, they're not a silly idea. You know, you think, oh, this is just, this is communism at work. It's not. This is sensible behavior because you're buying companies at very broken down prices. And when we bought the Kri Tung, uh, the, the Thai. Krung Fund, I mean, I think we made two and a half times our money out of it. So we bought, uh, when uh, in the BT days, we bought the, one of these support funds off the government when they were, you know, liquidating, having intervened. So don't treat that as a negative Could signal. Could be an opportunity. Yeah, don't, don't treat that as a negative si- signal. But, but the economy, I think, has got some serious work. And I think he overplayed his hand in COVID. I think it was a mind control game. He um, then has, you know, caused deep problems for the educated newcomers to the workforce. And for the older fellows, he's seen their jobs go off to Thailand, uh, or particularly Vietnam, and now into India. So he's absolutely screwed the economy, I believe. So I I think it'll grow very slowly. And India? India, I think, is very well placed. Modi will become more dictatorial still. The RSS is a real threat to that country, because they've got these two big religions. Um, so it's not as clear-cut as China. And, um, you know, folk who are more uh, knowledgeable tend to talk about the, the dangers of this blowing a bit. For the moment, he's a hero by all Hindus because he's changed... He's had a big effect on the bureaucracy. He's had a big effect on investment. Uh, he's done some very good things, but also the prices are high because they've had one of the the longest existing exchanges in Mumbai the Indians and through mutual funds have been buying the market forever the middle classes however you want to define them have been buying equity forever there was about I think it's 1857 or something when the Mumbai exchange started so it's not new to them and in the early days when we were going there and we were talking about the quadrilateral where they were putting in these these big uh, arterial routes you'd go and you'd see above the, the the highways you know congratulations for your successful listing so they'd have <laughs> these big banners i mean it was the most Very ex- public. it was ma- it was the most exciting thing you'd say oh you've just you've made a killing out of this so they were it was always it wasn't hidden that there were these special interest groups just making like bandits everyone was not everyone but there were people who were participating of, of 
modest means. So it's an economy where I think it'll, it'll keep growing nicely. And it's but, grown but at over 6% a year for 30 years. That's what we forget. G- given the structure, you've just you've got to be a little bit wary, it sounds like. Be careful. Valuations are the thing I'm more worried about than the RSS because that can shift. And, and as we've seen, the most important thing we need to understand today is what we are in a nominal world. So where you have this confluence of central banks and treasuries both spending money together, uh, you've got this afterglow from that. And that's what I think we're seeing in Wall Street right now. It's the afterglow of all that money. And then these, you know, all these inducements. So in some industries, you've already had it with the COVID and now you're getting the withdrawal symptoms. And I think that can still await us. Well, it's been a colourful journey. We've gone around the globe a few times and we've had some hairy incidents. But I've got to say congratulations on a fabulous career. It sounds like it's still in full swing as well. So thanks for coming in and talking to us. It's been fabulous. Thanks, Keith. Thanks a lot.